Uh, would you turn in your Bibles, please, to Luke chapter 22? We're continuing our study, uh, studies in the Gospel of Luke. I heard a preacher on a podcast this week, and he said, when you hear the rustle of a Bible, you know, when people are looking up the verses to a preacher, it's like the rustle of angels' wings. And it's, it's so good. Uh, I, I want uh, you to be people of the book so that you see that everything that I say, hopefully, this is your task to check that it comes from the book, that I'm not adding into it, I'm not taking away from it, but what is said is there. And uh, I would encourage you just to follow the readings. Part of the problem is with using a phone is I can't hear that, Russell. But as long as you're looking at the text and following it through, that's the main thing. So Luke chapter 22 and verse 39. As he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to his disciples and found them sleeping from sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation." Amen, and we know God always blesses the reading of His own inspired Word. So, this morning in our studies in Luke, we come to one of the most sacred and solemn portions of Scripture, the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, Luke doesn't tell us, you'll notice, it was the Garden of Gethsemane. He just says that Jesus went out as was His custom to the Mount of Olives, but when you put the gospel records together, you discover that He went not only to the Mount of Olives, but he went to the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, this morning, as we come to this serious and solemn portion of the Word of God, I want you to notice three things. The prayer that was offered, the anguish that was felt, and the submission that was given. So, first of all, then, the prayer that was offered. Look at verse 39, and he came he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. Historians tell us that during our Lord's earthly life, there were no gardens in Jerusalem. The city was much too crowded for that, and there was a strange law that manure couldn't be mixed with the sacred soil, uh, lest it become polluted. And as a result, the rich of the city possessed gardens on the Mount of olives where they could uh, uh, rest and relax from the pressures of urban life. Many of these gardens were planted with olive trees uh, that not only provided shade, but also provided a lucrative source of income to the owner of the garden. And that's what the word Gethsemane means. It actually means olive press. So, here, not only in this garden were olives grown, but they were harvested and they were pressed to extract the valuable oil. It was here Jesus came to pray the Garden of Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives, a garden perhaps owned by a wealthy friend. We know that He came to pray because that's exactly what He did. He prayed. 
And he also challenged the disciples to pray. Twice he says to them in verse 40 and verse 46, pray that you may not enter into temptation. Now, I want you to notice three very simple lessons about prayer. First of all, the need to pray. Why did Jesus pray and in praying experience such deep and profound agony in his soul? Well, I think you get an indication of that in the uh, words that he spoke to the disciples in verse 40 and 46, pray that you may not enter into temptation. That the disciples needed to pray because the devil was about to unleash severe and strong temptations against them. And if Jesus instructed the disciples to pray that they wouldn't fall into temptation, is it not reasonable to conclude that he prayed for the very same reason, that he would not be overcome by temptation, that he was tempted by the devil at this point to withdraw from Calvary, to withdraw from the cross. Father, if you are willing, verse 42, remove this cup from me. You remember our Lord's temptations in the wilderness. This was the issue in the second temptation. The devil showed him all the kingdoms of the world and said, I will give you all this. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Now, God the Father had promised God the Son all the kingdoms of the world. Psalm 2 and verse 8, that great messianic psalm, you are my son. Today I, I have begotten you. Ask of me. Ask of me and I will give you the nations as your inheritance. God the Father promised God the Son the nations, but the way that he was going to have the nations was by purchasing for himself a people from every tribe and language, people and nation, as Revelation 5 and verse 9 says. But Satan came to him and says, you don't need that. You don't need to go to the cross. You don't need to endure Calvary. I'll give the nations to you if you bow down and worship me. That temptation in the wilderness was a temptation to avoid the cross. It was an attempt to divert him from the cross. And I would suggest to you that the temptation in Gethsemane, it was exactly the same, to avoid the cross. If it is possible, may this cup pass from me. That's why Jesus prayed. And that's why the disciples needed to pray. And that's why we need to pray. Because we have an enemy who is determined to tempt us and seduce us from the right path. And if the Lord Jesus Christ, the perfect man, the sinless Son of God, needed to pray in the face of temptation, we can be sure that we need to pray in the face of temptation. That's the need for prayer. Secondly, notice the failure in prayer. Notice that when Jesus returned to these disciples, he found them sleeping. In other words, they failed to pray. Matthew says their eyes were heavy. Now, what caused this spirit of heaviness, this tiredness to come upon the disciples? Was it 
uh, as one commentator says, uh, post-Passover sleep. The sleep, the tiredness, the weariness that you experience after eating a heavy meal, just as we experience when after Christmas dinner. Well, not according to Luke. Luke gives us the reason for their tiredness in verse 45. And he rose from prayer and find them sleeping for sorrow. Do you see that? Here's the reason. For sorrow. They were exhausted, says the NIV, from sorrow. The announcement of his suffering and death had a profound emotional effect upon these disciples. And that emotional turmoil that left them reeling left them tired and weak. We are some psychosomatic holes that the weariness of the body can impart its weariness to the mind, but the weariness of the mind can impart its weariness to the flesh. I thought I was unique in this, but uh, after I conduct the funeral, I'm just overcome with tiredness. I need to go and lie down. And then we had a tired pastor in Bangor, and he told me the same thing, that after a funeral, he had to go and lie down. The emotional stress of that occasion expressed itself in tiredness, and this is why the disciples slept. But I want you to notice that the Lord experienced that same emotional tiredness. And when he withdrew, verse 41, from them uh, uh, about a stone's throw, he knelt down and prayed. Now, that's significant that he knelt down and prayed because that wasn't the usual prayer posture. The prayer posture for the Jews was to stand with their hands elevated. That was the prayer posture. If you ever have the opportunity to go to Jerusalem and to the Wailing Wall, you will see Orthodox Jews standing at the Wailing Wall with their hands lifted up, praying. And so, when the Scriptures tell us to lift up holy hands, that's what it's referring to. It's, it's to pray, to pray. Jesus normally stood and elevated His hands, but at this point, He kneels. Why did He kneel? Matthew and Mark tell us he threw himself to the ground. Now, why did he do that? Well, just like the disciples, his heart was overcome with sorrow. Mark says he prayed, my heart is overwhelmed with sorrow. He too was emotionally and mentally stretched and overwhelmed. He too was like the disciples, exhausted and sleepy. But unlike the disciples, he pushed himself through that tiredness and he prayed. And I think it's significant that they failed and he did not. They were scattered when the temptation came, but he conquered and went to the cross. Do you see that very simple but significant lesson? They neglected prayer because of the weariness of the flesh, because of this excessive sorrow, and they fell into temptation. He prayed in spite of the weariness of the flesh and that greater sorrow, and he resisted the temptation and embraced the cross. Pray that you will not fall 
into temptation. I don't know if you've seen those posters outside some churches, and it says, uh, seven days without prayer makes one weak, W-E-A-K. Seven days without prayer makes one weak. One day without prayer makes one weak. One hour without prayer makes one weak. One moment without prayer makes one weak. They failed because they neglected prayer. Our Lord conquered sin and temptation because He prayed. The need for prayer, the failure in prayer. The third thing I want you to notice is the answer to prayer. Notice verse 42. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Now, that prayer is not answered. The cup was not taken from him. Thank God for unanswered prayer. If there was ever occasion to thank God for unanswered prayer, this was it. If this cup had been taken from him, you and I would never have been forgiven, and you and I would have never experienced the salvation of God. Thank God for unanswered prayer. However, we need to understand that when we pray, although God doesn't always answer us in the way that He want, uh, in the way that we want, He does answer prayer. Notice the answer that Jesus received in verse 43. And there appeared an angel from heaven strengthening him. The Father didn't take the cup away, but He sent an angel from heaven to strengthen him, to enable him to drink that cup. God always, God doesn't always take the problems away. Sometimes He gives us instead the strength to carry the burden. Remember Paul's thorn in the flesh. Three times, three times he prayed that that thorn in the flesh, whatever it was, would be taken away. But it wasn't taken away. But God said to him, my grace is sufficient for you. He didn't take the problem away. He gave him the strength to carry the problem. And sometimes God answers prayers in ways that we don't expect. He doesn't take the problem away, but He gives us the strength to carry. It's interesting to me that in Matthew 4, after the wilderness temptations, we are told angels came and attended him. On these two occasions of severe temptation to the Son of God, the Father dispatched angels to strengthen him in the face of that temptation. So, in a way, his prayer was answered. The cup wasn't taken away, but angels were dispatched from heaven to enable him to drink that cup the prayer that was offered, the need for prayer, the failure in prayer, and the answer to prayer. The second thing I want you to notice this morning is the anguish that was felt. It's clear from this passage that our Lord experienced deep and intense anguish in the Garden of Gethsemane. Look at verse 44. And being in an agony, in an agony, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat became like drops of blood falling to the ground. The NIV says, and being in anguish, being in agony. That word was originally used in classical Greek as an athlete who is pushing and, 
and, and stressing and mustering all the energy that he has to stretch every muscle and sinew to push himself to the tape in the Greek games. It then came to be used of emotional strain, the stretching pressure that comes upon the mind in times of stress. One Bible scholar translates verse 44 as, as this, and having entered a state of severe mental and emotional struggle to the point of agony, he prayed all the more earnestly. This is not just anxiety or nervousness. The emotion is so intense and so profound that it begins to affect our Lord physically. Look who you remember was a doctor, tells us that his sweat became like drops of blood. So intense is this emotional pressure that our Lord not only sweats profusely, but the little uh, blood vessels, capillaries, just below, beneath the surface of the skin rupture, and as his sweat falls to the ground, it's colored by his blood. This is a knowing no one medical condition. It's rare, but it does happen. When a person is under deep emotional stress, blood vessels rush, uh, rupture, and there is an infusion of blood into the sweat, that the psychological pressure you are under manifests itself in bloody sweat. In fact, Matthew and Mark tell us that his soul was overwhelmed, listen to this, to the point of death. So intense was this suffering that it nearly killed him. No wonder the Father sent an angel to strengthen him. So dreadful, so appalling, so fearful, so horrendous was the thing that lay before him that he nearly died just thinking about it. It's actually a penetrating and powerful insight into the humanity of our Lord when you see the effects that the mental turmoil had on him physically. The Lord experienced deep, deep anguish in his body and soul. Now, what caused him to feel such agony? Now, the obvious answer is, of course, his death. Within a few hours, our Lord would suffer dreadfully at the hands of the Romans, and crucifixion was, of course, a horrible death. It was said of crucifixion in ancient society, he who dies by crucifixion dies a thousand deaths. The pain was prolonged and intense. But there are many people who face death without the, that same emotional turmoil as our Lord experienced here. One thinks of the martyrs who courageously, calmly, and stoically faced their executioners. I mentioned last week about Thomas Cranmer, you remember, who had signed uh, a statement recanting, repudiating uh, the, the Reformed faith, the evangelical faith. And so when he came to the flames, he held out his hand into the flames, uh, the hand that had signed the recantation, and he says, this hand that hath offended, and he held it there until it was burnt to a stump. Tremendous courage in the face of death. Even unbelievers dis can display such courage. So, we've got to ask ourselves then, why did our Lord experience such emotional turmoil 
in the face of his death? Was it just the thought of crucifixion? Was it just the physical pain that he was about to endure? Why did he sweat drops of blood? Why did he nearly die with dread? Well, the answer there is found in verse 42. Notice it, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. The reference to the cup is a very important and very significant reference because the cup in Scripture represented the wrath of God. Psalm 75 and verse 8, in the hand of the Lord is a cup full of foaming wine. He pours it out on the wicked of the earth. Isaiah 51 and verse 7, awake, awake, rise up, uh, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord, the cup of His wrath. Jeremiah 25 and verse 15, take from my hand this cup filled with the wine of my wrath. Revelation 14, 9 and 10, if anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on the forehead or in his hand, he too will drink of the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. This is why Jesus sweat drops of blood. This is why Jesus is overwhelmed to the point of death. This is why he prayed, if it is possible, may this cup pass from me. Because that cup was symbolic of the wrath of God, the wrath that he would bear. J.C. Ryle says the only satisfaction, the only satisfactory explanation of Christ's intense agony is the old doctrine of penal substitution where God the Father gathered up the eternal wrath of all the people of God from every generation, from creation to the winding up of the world, and He laid it on His Son. He poured it out on His Son at Calvary's cross, the Son that He loved. And the consequences of that was for the first time, as we were thinking of on Good Friday, the Father-Son intimacy was interrupted And the son cries out at the height of his agony, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, here's the reason. Here's the explanation. Here's the answer to that question. Why have you forsaken me? Because you are drinking the cup. Because you are bearing the wrath. Because you're standing in the place of sinners and taking the punishment for their sin. He stands in our place. He takes our sin to Himself. And the wrath of God, the anger of God, the justifiable anger of God is poured out upon Him, upon the Son that He loves. If you don't understand that, you can't explain the agony, the intense agony that our Lord experienced in Gethsemane. The deep emotional turmoil is related to and dependent upon the cup that He was about to drink. It was the cup of God's wrath, and the thought of drinking that cup disturbed and distressed Him profoundly. And Cousins captures that perfectly 
in her hymn, O Christ, what burdens by thy head. Death and the curse were in our cup, O Christ, was full for thee. But thou hast drained this last dark drop, tis empty now for me. That bitter cup, love, drank it up, now blessings pour on me. If you imagine the Christian from the moment he first breathes upon this earth, he is, he is um, storing up wrath for himself that every time he sins, there's a, a drop of wrath being poured into the cup. And as he lives, he accumulates that wrath. Every day, there's another drop of wrath poured into that cup, and the cup is full. And the Father comes to the Son, and He says to the Son, drink that cup. And the Son looks into that cup, and He sees the awful consequences of drinking that cup, and He recoils from drinking that cup, and He sweats drops of blood. But He takes the cup from the hand of His Father, and in love He drinks it, taking to Himself that, that person's wrath that they might never be separated from God. He cries out, My God, my God, why have uh, you forsaken me? And he cries that cry because he's drinking that cup that, uh, that those who, whose sin is in that cup might never be separated from him. That's the anguish that was felt. Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me prayer that was offered, the anguish that was felt. The third thing I want you to notice is the submission that was displayed. Look at verse 42 again. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what my will, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. I think it's important for us to understand that although Jesus recoiled from the cross, he didn't retreat from the cross. He knew exactly what lay before him. Again and again, and the gospel writers tell us that Jesus set his face as a flint to Jerusalem. He, he went up to Jerusalem knowing what would happen to him there. He steadfastly, determinedly went to Jerusalem. He embraced Calvary. You, you get a little hint of that in verse 39. Uh, and he came and went, as was his custom to the Mount of Olives. As was his custom. The NIV says... Uh, he came out and went as usual to the Mount of Olives. Now, you remember from our study in the Passover that he didn't tell all the disciples that uh, uh, where the upper room was. He sent uh, uh, Peter and John to make preparations. He didn't tell Judas because he wanted to celebrate the Passover with his disciples. He wanted to institute the Lord's table. He didn't want uh, Judas arriving with a cohort of truth, uh, troops to arrest him there. But now, he goes to the place, his usual place, the, the place that he customarily went to, knowing that he was placing himself in the very spot where Judas knew who would, he would be, and he would lead the troops uh, uh, and the officers to him. There was no question of him not going to the cross. He went to the place that he knew Judas would know. But as he thinks and meditates on what lay, uh, lies before him, he says, Oh, Father, if there's any other way, any other way, 
other than me drinking this cup find that way. But there's no other way. The Father knew it and the Son knew it. And so the Son, in deep humility, bows to the will of the Father and says, not my will, but yours be done. That is the highest and deepest and most profound prayer that anyone can ever pray. Thy will be done. It's the summit of spirituality. Uh, It's great, great a great prayer to pray, to submit to the will of God, no matter how difficult the will of God might be. Richard Cameron, the Covenanter martyr, was put to death by the king's troops in Scotland in 1680. And they cut off his hands and his head. And they took his head and his hands to his son, who was also in prison. And very callously, they said, presenting the head and the hands to the son, do you know who who this is, and taking the head in his hands, he kissed them. And he says, I know them. I know them. They are my sons, my dear sons. Good is the will of the Lord who cannot wrong me or mine, but hath made goodness and mercy follow me all the days of my life. Good is the will of the Lord. Good is the will of the Lord. Now, that's great faith. It's not wrong to wrestle with the will of God. It's not wrong to pray uh, 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 um, about the will of God and wrestle in prayer about the will of God. But ultimately, our prayer should always be, Thy will be done. Thy will be done is the pinnacle of all praying. And here Jesus in the garden bows to the will and the purpose of God. Not my will, but yours be done. And that's what prayer essentially is. Prayer is not bending the will of God to suit us, but ultimately it's um, submitting to the will of God and submitting to Him. Because sometimes God has a greater purpose in our difficulties that we don't see and understand. Now, what I want you to notice, and I think this is important, and we can easily overlook it, that Jesus prayed, not my will, but yours be done. That the will of the Father was for him to drink the cup. That the cross and the wrath-bearing was part of the Father's will, that it was decreed by him, it was what he wanted. Sometimes we give the impression that Jesus kind of stepped into the breach to wring mercy out of a a reluctant father, that the father is essentially and supremely a God of wrath, a God who just delights to pour out his wrath on sinners. And Jesus, by his death, squeezes mercy out of him and forces his hand to forgive sinners. That is a perversion of the gospel. God the Father planned this from all eternity. It was his way of sparing sinners. It was his way to forgive sinners and to bring them into his family. He could have wiped this world out and consumed us all in our wrath. He could have started all over again with a new creation. No, he didn't. He planned this great salvation for us. How could he maintain his justice and at the same time, forgive sinners. 
Well, he would send his son into the world in the place of sinners to bear the wrath for sinners so that they could justifiably be forgiven. And at the same time, his justice and his character might be maintained. It was the will of the Father. We need to understand that it was because of the love of the Father that he suffered. How deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that he should send his only Son to make a wretch his treasure. He loved his Son completely and absolutely and eternally. But he gave his Son this cup, this cup of wrath, that we might be forgiven. Oh, how he must have loved us. John writes in 1 John 4 and verse 10, this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a propitiation for our sins and not for our sins only, for the sins of the whole world. That's what the word propitiation means, to bear wrath, to absorb anger, to take punishment. He sent him in love, to be the propitiation for our sins. That's the love of the Father. But think of the love of the Son. He takes the cup, and He drinks the cup, that He bears the wrath. Was it the nails, O Savior, that bind thee to the tree? Nay, t'was thine everlasting love, thy love for me, for me. And what you have at Calvary and what you have in the, in the Garden of Gethsemane is this great revelation and demonstration of the, the love of the Trinity. God demonstrates His love to us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I want you to just, in conclusion, think about this for a moment. If there was any other way that you could be forgiven, if there was any other way that you could gain entrance into heaven, if there was any other way that you could be made right with God, would God have given, God the Father, given that cup to God the Son? If there was any other way that salvation could be procured other than by Christ drinking that cup, do you think that the Father would have given that cup to the Son? And do you think the Son would have taken that cup and drank it? In fact, it's quite blasphemous to say that there's some other way that you can be made right with God, that you could gain entrance into heaven other than by the substitutionary death of the Lord Jesus, because you're essentially saying that Christ didn't have to drink that cup. There is one way, and that's one way only, and that's the substitutionary death of the Lord Jesus. And the, the question is not whether you're coming in your way or, or some other way, that you must come in His way. You must come believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, trusting in Him, for the grounds of your acceptance before God, trusting that when he drank that cup, that he actually took to himself your wrath. Do you believe that? Do you believe in Jesus? 
There is no other way to come. There is no other way that we can be saved. There is no other way that we can be made right uh, with God but by believing that He died in our place. He died that we might be forgiven. He died uh, to make us good that we might go at last to heaven saved by His precious blood. The prayer that was offered, the anguish that was felt, and the submission that was displayed, not my will, but yours be done. Amen.